Welcome to episode eight of The Art of Complexity. Uh, in today's episode, we're going to interview Colonel Retired Joe Dowdy of the United States Marine Corps, as well as uh, take a look at some of his experiences, both in the Marine Corps as well as his time uh, after the Marine Corps, where he was able to be involved in some amazing projects with uh, with NASA. Uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. I really enjoyed talking with Joe. He's, he's a fantastic conversationalist and just has stories upon stories that uh, really are pertinent. You know, stay tuned to the end because we'll offer you a download from Joe that shows you and talks about his, his kind of 10 maxims of leadership. And I really think it's important that you stick around for that. Listen, listen in the episode. I think you'll really enjoy it. So enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Art of Complexity podcast, where we explore how people and organizations understand and tackle the most complex challenges they face on a day-to-day basis. Simply put, how they think and act beyond. If you or your organization faces a challenge that seems to just be unsolvable, then you're in the right place. Now, here's your host, Roy Adams. Real quick, before we get into the episode, I had one more thing I wanted to share with you. You know, we're going to be launching a new segment into each episode where we're going to take the questions from you, our listeners, and uh, explore those questions uh, in the episode or separately as a segment in the episode. But only to do that, you can only leave us a message through the Anchor mobile app. So I encourage you to go download Anchor's mobile app on your favorite app store find the art of complexity, uh, subscribe, and then you can leave us a message right in the app. I'll get the message. I'll reply to you and your message may be featured on an upcoming episode. Um, as you, uh, you know, ask us a, a relevant and engaging question, we'll make that part of our, of our community of listeners here. So if you get a chance after you listen to this episode, go ahead and download the anchor app and then find the art of complexity, subscribe, and then leave us a message. Now let's go on to the episode. Well, I'm excited today to have um, Colonel Retired Joe Dowdy of the United States Marine Corps join us on this episode of The Art of Complexity. You know, if this is your first episode, um, these interviews have been really fun to do. We just explored this whole idea of complexity around different contexts and different people's experience. And, and today when, uh, with, with Joe, we're going to just talk about some of, uh, some of his experiences and, and he's had a lot of them. Um, and that's why I'm excited about this episode because I think we can take this whole idea of navigating complexity a lot of different places. So Joe, welcome. Welcome to the episode. I'm glad to, to have you on today. Um, can you maybe give share a little bit of background of yourself? You know, I've, I've, probably did a interview uh, introduction prior to this but just kind of give people a brief introduction of who you are in in you know, some of your background well good more uh, good afternoon really uh, Roy and thank you for having me on this is a singular honor to do this particularly these issues that y'all are tackling on these podcasts having listened to previous podcasts I would highly recommend if this is your first time uh, to listen to this particular podcast, go back and listen to the others. Uh, you'll be enriched. Wow. In terms of background, uh, grew up in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. You know, uh, uh, my family was from uh, North Central Arkansas. Uh, I can hear Powell. it in your voice. <laughs> yeah, okay. You know, I, I, I think I speak with, without an accent. 
But, um, you know, early on in my life, um, you know, I, I was kind of drawn to the military. Uh, I'm not sure why. I mean, you know, like every other family had, a, a, you know, family members, grandfather, and, you know, uncles and great uncles and so forth who had served in the military, particularly World War II. Uh, but I was always interested in history, uh, like many future military officers, perhaps. And I had an opportunity to attend uh, Ole Miss, University of Mississippi, through the Naval ROTC program there, in which I was very fortunate to uh, attend that university and participate in that program. And uh, initially went in um, kind of scared of the Marine Corps, to be honest with you. I was intimidated by it. Um, you know, I didn't know if I had what it would take uh, to become a Marine officer. But uh, that really started my professional journey, um, you know, in 1975 as a freshman. Uh, some friendships that I made there uh, have lasted uh, that test of time to the present. And, um, but more importantly, I think I uh, was around not only midshipmen, but the, the staff members uh, that were on the staff, the Marine officer instructors and assistant Marine officer instructors that were, uh, you know, professional uh, military officers and senior non-commissioned officers that uh, took their time to teach this young uh, midshipman uh, about really the fundamental uh, skills uh, that we should have about leadership and what it meant to be a a Marine officer in this case. And so I received my commission in 1979 and uh, was fortunate to become a infantry officer after six months of the basic school and then uh, uh, eight weeks of infantry officer course there at Quantico, Virginia and served as a rifle platoon commander in 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines and then later an anti-mech uh, officer, um, uh, platoon commander and uh, that same battalion and made two Mediterranean deployments, uh, six months, one was actually seven months. Uh, my second one was uh, almost exclusively in uh, Beirut. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, continued to grow within the Marine Corps from that 42 man rifle platoon. I had the great honor to command uh, a little over 6,000 Marines in a regimental combat team going to Baghdad in the invasion of Iraq of 2003. I retired after almost 25 years uh, in the Marine Corps. Um, it was an amicable uh, parting, but uh, you know, I learned uh, early on uh, that uh, you know, the Marine Corps has no capacity to love you. And uh, <laughs> at some point, uh, and that's true about a lot of organizations. And, um, and, and so we, you know, uh, uh, parted ways in that sense. And I spent a little bit of time in the defense industry as a transition uh, piece, uh, working on an Army program, the Future Combat System. And then uh, I really had an itch to uh, go out and, and um, kind of, in a sense, parlay some of the skills uh, around uh, leadership and uh, performance improvement, uh, organizational design uh, for uh, organizations outside the, the military. Hmm. And, um, uh, you know, 
I, I discovered in that time in the Marine Corps, we started out early as all uh, military officers do very early, learning uh, what it means to be a leader, but you know, some of the um, you know, process around it uh, with leadership traits and principles uh, was raised, I like to think I was raised by non-commissioned officers and staff non-commissioned officers, we call them Marine Corps, those senior, more senior enlisted, but some of the junior Marines that really form uh, the foundation of my leadership philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they come in stories and they'll probably bring some of those up. Uh, I've developed what I call the rules of combat uh, that are just these, these lessons that were learned by, um, uh, you know, that experience. And, um, in one day, um, in, uh, 2005, as I'm watching, um, uh, the events unfold in the wake of hurricane Katrina, uh, I get a phone call. I was living in Carlsbad, California. And uh, one of my best friends, we were freshmen, uh, midshipmen together, and he was commissioned in the Marine Corps at the same time. And we became infantry officers together. He went to the West Coast. I went to the East Coast. But we, like many of us, we'd stayed friends for a long time, um, continuously, and checking on uh, people's status of their family, what they were doing interesting. But he had found his way to NASA, National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Yeah. And had worked his way up to uh, be the program manager for the space shuttle program in the wake of the Columbia accident in February of 2003. Hmm. And uh, he calls me, which wasn't unusual, uh, but he uh, says, Joe, uh, I'm going to take charge of the disaster relief for the two NASA uh, one center in a facility that's in the uh, Mississippi Gulf Coast in New or- East New Orleans area. Uh, one's called Stennis Space Center, Mississippi, and the other is called Mishu Assembly Facility, the old Andrew Higgins, um, you know, the Higgins boat from World War II fame, one of his old factories that had been taken over in the 60s to build the first stage of the Saturn Vs, mm-hmm. and then later the external fuel tanks for the space shuttle program. He said, I'm going to be the uh, senior NASA official in charge of disaster recovery. He said, it looks like combat. Will you come be my advisor? And of course, I said, sure, absolutely. When do you need me and where should I be? He said, well, can you be in Huntsville, Alabama tomorrow? (laughs) Absolutely. And um, so my wife, Priscilla, uh, this wasn't a new uh, event for her in the sense that I got to go and she helped me get my, uh, affairs in order pack and old, uh, the Uvic with this, uh, parachute bag that we all kind of had at one time. Uh, they've got some new technology now, but, uh, <laughs> and I called Delta and said, uh, I need to get to Huntsville, Alabama from San Diego. And they kind of scratched their head and said, oh, we don't know how we can do that, but here's the routing from San Diego to Cincinnati, Cincinnati to Orlando, Orlando to Atlanta, and Atlanta <laughs> to Huntsville. Well, as fate would have it, as we took off from um, uh, Cincinnati, you know, one of those regional jets, um, the pilot comes on, you know, we're at cruise altitude, and he says, look, uh, nothing to be alarmed about, but I've got some indicator lights that's going to lead us to shutting down an engine, and we're going to make a precautionary landing, and 
Huntsville, Alabama. <laughs> so, so well, there you go. You know, I, I, I made that time hack, and in um, just to kind of complete that story, uh, I joined with my friend Bill Parsons, and um, uh, not a gifted engineer, by the way. I meant to mention that earlier. He'd be the first to tell you that, but I will tell you, he is a gifted leader, and that's why NASA put him, the NASA administrator, put him in charge of the return to flight activities following that Columbia disaster accident. So um, he and I, uh, you know, showed up at uh, Stennis, Stennis Space Center um, and immediately went to work. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was kind of a live by your wits sort of activity. You know, he would tell me, uh, um, he replaced, by the way, the center director immediately, uh, told him to go home, a retired yes. admiral. And, uh, and we engaged in uh, really, you know, to the theme of this uh, podcast, to step into a world uh, characterized by its complex nature. Yeah. Uh, organizationally, Stennis Space Center is very complex in its, uh, you know, tenants there alone. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, you could call it a space center and have the NASA emblem on the, the front gate, but it really is a federal city, a state mm-hmm. city even. Um, the cynic might call it a pork barrel city, but I won't delve into that. That's what small southern poor states do oftentimes with a yeah. strong congressional uh, delegation. But, um, you know, so you had a uh, Navy uh, research lab there. You have uh, uh, Navy SEALs mm-hmm. have a, a, a large presence uh, there in mm-hmm. a training center. And you've got the National, uh, the Naval National Oceanographic and Meteorological Command that really NASA is a small part of it, but they are the landlords. Sure. And uh, so. So, Joe, when. Um... I think we're going to really want to explore this whole experience of, of being uh, at NASA after uh, the space shuttle uh, Columbia accident. But I kind of want to back up and ask you a couple of questions about how the Marine Corps prepared you early in your career to go into situations that were unknown. And, and then we define uh, complexity uh, here at our practice at Genosco Consulting of really it's it's going into the unknown where you're moving into situations and systems where uh what to do next is not always apparent it's not something you can just follow a procedure and get to the end point of because the system you're involved in is dynamically changing all the time and i think the military especially all services but particularly the the army and the air and the marine corps and to some extent, the Air Force um, really have prepared um, their officers and non-commissioned officers to to really understand they have to embrace that uncertainty. So, you know, maybe reflect back to me what what it was about your um, your training and mentorship in the Mar- in early in your Marine Corps career that helped prepare you specifically prepare you for uh, moving into those unknown situations? Sure. Well, yeah, and that's a great question. So I would tell you uh, one aspect of being um, in the military, in, in this case, in the Marine Corps, 
is that I think is not generally understood or certainly appreciated uh, by others, and I would include NASA in this, is, and, and it's not a very precise term, but uh, the way I think of it is in the Marine Corps, we lived in dog years. And, and what I mean by that is, and let me just go to my time as uh, infantry battalion commander for two mm-hmm. years. Uh, I knew that, you know, uh, heaven forbid something bad happened and, and I lost that command, I was going to be there for two years. Right. And, and, I, and, and so it creates almost an imperative for you to uh, go in and understand the organization as, as well as you can, mature that understanding, um, you know, know the people, uh, you know, know uh, any unique uh, missions that they might have or how they approach executing those missions through standard operating procedures um, to make that assessment early uh, in your time there, learn that job, particularly when you're at, you know, infantry battalion is one example, but then uh, go back as a staff officer at the United States Central Command, uh, which is a joint headquarters that, uh, you know, oversees all the military operations um, in the Middle East. And, and so there was no training per se uh, about the, the particulars uh, of, of that region uh, or that particular job that I you know found myself into but you know that there's an imperative that uh, leads you to be successful leads you into a rapid assessment of your environment you know uh, you know what's the organizational design what's those relationships what are those kind of unique requirements, uh, you know, as a staff officer, often what's the limits of uh, any authority that you might have as a staff officer, really it's a dangerous slope where you try to assume uh, authority that's really not yours, but uh, those kind of aspects. And, and so, you know, kind of going into the unknown was inherent in that um, every two years, maybe sometimes less, very rarely more, um, that you know that you're gonna be learning a new job and that your success and your value to that organization is dependent on your ability to learn it quickly and lead those folks that you might find under your charge in uh, common goals and common objectives. You know, as an infantry officer, just like yourself, Roy, is uh, we do know what that ultimate objective is. Mm-hmm. As an instrument is to close with and destroy the enemy by fire and close combat. To be able to shoot, move, and communicate. Okay, so how do I do it within there? So as I found myself maturing in the Marine Corps through that experience, certainly the training, and I would, I would submit to you the education that you get through the more mm-hmm. formal and then the informal, uh, and see it as such, I've tried to see it as such, as these opportunities, um, then you, um, I, I believe you develop uh, the instincts or the intuition that can then make you successful or 
create the conditions that you can be successful within in um, you know the those second and third careers for me. So um, you know, th- kind of staying right there on that theme of this, you know, the experiences creating this intuition. What would you say is uh, the most critical? Um, mindset change you made from early in your career to later in your career that gave you uh, the ability to quickly assess the situations you were placed in. And I'm even thinking like you're moving into regimental command, which for our listeners, um, go look up what a Marine regiment is, Marine regiment, com- sorry, a Marine combat regiment. Um, and, and understand that you're crossing the border moving into um, into Iraq um, in the dynamic nature of of combat is it's always changing. So, what mindset change did you make from early in your career to uh, that more mature time in your career where you've had all that experience uh, to be able to lead an organization in such a dynamic, complex environment? Well, I mean, I think you hit on it, Roy. Is is the accumulation of various experiences. Uh, I'm kind of an adherent to, and I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with the uh, the uh, intuitive decision-making model that was a study based on playing chess. And, and you, you know, if you can imagine, I'm a chess novice. Uh, my granddaughter and I are learning chess together as we speak, you know, I mean, currently. But, you know, as I reflect back, uh, I think the, the, the sum total of my experiences led me to a point where like a chess master who can see in, in the study the correct move if given 10 seconds to make a particular move or 10 minutes, they're going to make the same move at a very high percentage um, of the time, regardless of the time given. And you know, a chess novice is going to go along a, a slope that in 10 seconds in the study, they got the correct move at about 11% of the time. But they worked themselves up over, t- over these change of time to make the move to about 91%, but the chess master stayed at about 94 across. So I, I, in a sense, I believe I became like that chess master because I had this sum total of experience that now I can reflect back on and dissect it. I don't remember it being a conscious effort per se, but, but there were some other partners in this, I submit to you. Um, That I was very fortunate and blessed with in almost every case in, in these 20 plus years in the United States Marine Corps to have these wonderful leaders um, that allowed me to, in some cases, make mistakes mm-hmm. and learn from those mistakes. And I think of a guy that any of the military leaders, uh, if they aren't familiar with this name, they should be a guy named Anthony C. Zinni, Tony Zinni. Oh, yeah. uh, I was a four-star general. He was my first battalion commander. And I remember as a second lieutenant, I'm, I'm standing at a, we're doing an exercise before we're going on deployment. It's called a tap test. It's kind of like, it's kind of like a poor man's version of what the army calls the RTAP, you know, a graded evaluation. And we're in this defensive position and my platoon is looking good. On my left flank is a combat engineer platoon under a staff sergeant. 
that looks like, and this is a technical term, like a jackass circus. <laughs> uh, not wearing their gear correctly and all that. And I hear a Jeep coming up the trail. That's when we still had Jeeps behind me. And I turn in God. I mean, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Zinni, God, <laughs> you know, in my world, uh, is in the Jeep. And he gets out, hey, Joe, how you doing? I said, sir, you know, kind of come to a position of tension. Some boy's looking good. Yes, sir, what's your mission here? You know, kind of normal things. Mm-hmm. And then he says, and what about this platoon over here? And I immediately answer, sir, that's not my, those aren't my Marines. Now, that, that was a cardinal sin because mm-hmm. the senior man is always in charge. Mm-hmm. And I say, and he does what I call the RCA Victor dog, you know, the kind of cocks the head, you know? <laughs> and I said, sir, uh, I got it. And he go, okay, I know you'll take care of it. I'll see you later. Well, God has spoken in my world mm-hmm. and he wasn't pleased, although he didn't say that, right? right? And I was beating myself up. I go over, hey, Staff Sergeant, let's get your gear on. Let's get into tactical position, you know? And they did that. They responded, right? And, but I'm devastated. Mm-hmm. And uh, the next day, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Zinni pulls up uh, to our company position. Uh, I think it was the end of the exercise. You know, we're kind of in administrative mode. And he comes and finds me. He said, hey, Joe, tell me what you learned yesterday. I said, well, sir, you know, the senior man's always in charge. I knew that. I just failed to do it. He goes, that's right. That's right. And he said, but I guarantee you, you'll never do that again. And the only thing I ask you to do is remember this and pass it on to others. Mm. In a sense, I'm passing it on to our listeners and reminding myself of this. And uh, just as a side, uh, every time I had the great honor to promote a a Lance Corporal to that first rank that constitutes a non-commissioned officer in Marine Corps Corporal, is I had that opportunity to participate in the reading of the warrant and uh, re-administering the oath and sometimes and a lot of times pin on one of the chevrons on their collar, I would always remind them that now you are in charge of two-thirds of the Marine Corps. You know, if everybody else is gone and there's one corporal left and the rest are Lance Corporals, privates first class and privates, you're in charge. And, 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 and I use that as an illustrative example to show you a couple of things or, you know, remind myself of a couple of things. One, words matter. Words mm-hmm. matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zinni could have not thought one whit about that. You know, he'll go take care of that. It's all said and done. But I'm still devastated. Two is that you can learn from your mistakes that we have obligations as leaders to then carry those lessons on to share with others. Zinni, and I don't know that I would attribute it to Zinni, but I do in the sense I heard it from him first, that constitutes what I call my rules of combat. There's Mm -hmm. There's no rank order except rule one and two. Rule one is the enemy always has a vote, and two, don't generate your own friction. But because uh, in complex organizations, complex enterprises, there's always friction, you know, yeah. that are working against each other. Just don't generate artificial friction. But one of those is be a teacher, not a lecturer, 
be a student, not a critic. Mm. Be a teacher, not a lecturer, and be a student, and not just some cynic or critic. And, and so it took a little energy for Zinni to come back and make sure that one, I learned the lesson, that I internalized it, but two, that very personal touch of Lieutenant Colonel to Second Lieutenant, I'm gonna put you back together. Now, was that his thought? I don't know. Uh, you know, I don't know, but I, I assume that it was. Well, it had a tremendous impact if you're remembering it to this day. Absolutely. Uh, and you carry that lesson to, to those that you have led. I, 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 too, had a similar experience by a now four-star general who was at the time a colonel, uh, uh, General Townsend's his name. Uh, I call it my walk in the desert because it was in Iraq. And, you know, he put his hand around my shoulder and said, let's take a walk. Um, and at the time I was a major and I'm supposed to be in charge of the operation and I'm supposed to be helping two company commanders uh, execute the tactical mission and a similar type of experience where he, he, he knew, and I knew I had made some mistakes. Um, but it wasn't a mistake that cost anybody their life, thankfully. And two, it was a mistake that, um, I needed to learn a lesson about, and he helped guide me through that. And I think that's sure. a key thing that you're really highlighting on for any leaders who really are, are leading organizations in a complex environment. What you do as a leader is so important. It's so critical to the success no process no magic you know we call it the silver bullet there's nothing that's going to get that organization out of the chaos of complexity faster than your leadership as a leader and what that's you right. do with your the subordinates that you lead so with that in mind um i i let's like jump ahead a little bit and kind of kind of unpack your experience at nasa post uh, space shuttle uh, accident and your partnership with the, the leader there. Uh, I think the official term is you were a chief of staff. Well, um, eventually, eventually. Eventually. Yeah. Um, so, so maybe unpack a little bit about entering into that chaotic environment and what are some things that immediately situationally you had to deal with from an organizational perspective and a leadership perspective? Yeah, good. And, and I just want to touch one thing, Roy, before we, we get into that, which I, I find Interesting, certainly, but uh, you know. So you'd ask about my Marine Corps experience. It's almost like a graduate school, and and that I found and confirmed really in my experiences that we're getting ready to talk about that um, the uh, um, the things that I learned early on mm -hmm. were confirmed over time. Uh, the things that I thought I'd learned that didn't work were then discarded. Mm -hmm. And so as we, we, we got on the ground, as I described a little earlier, uh, in this chaotic, and, and what, what do I mean by chaotic? Um, we pull up uh, this wonderful uh, space center, uh, beautiful uh, place there on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, and I pull up to the headquarters, and uh, I notice in the, the kind of wide open yard uh, lawns, you know, debris uh, that turned out to be from about a third of the roof of this rather large headquarter building they call Building 1100. Um, and we walk in to a staff meeting. And, uh, and as we walk in, we go into the, uh, and I've never been there before, 
Uh, it's where they test all the rocket motors, um, you know, prior to flight. So they have big test stands that I would ultimately uh, later get more familiar with. But we walk in, and the first person we meet is um, a guy named Bam Bam, African American <laughs> gentleman, huge guy, was a custodian. Hmm. And uh, Bill Parsons, who I'd referenced earlier, had been the center director there. He's from Mississippi. Um, and um, when the Columbia accident occurred, that's when he was pulled out and sent to Houston and uh, to lead that effort called Return to Fly. So he knew a lot of these folks, had that personal relationship. And he sees Bam and gives him a hug. And I mean, Bam is a huge individual, gentle giant. Um, and he says to him, Bam, how did you do? He said, I lost everything. And my mama lost everything. But I found a nice, uh, you know, uh, one of these metal sheds on my property that, that hadn't been there before. So I, I actually got a metal shed out of it. <laughs> and he said, well, Bam, where are you living? He said, well, we're living in the cafeteria. My mama's here with me. He said, I want you to meet my friend, Joe. Hi, Joe. And uh, I want you to meet my friend, Joe. And uh, um, and I, if you ever doubt where the divine spark lives, it certainly, you, I don't doubt it anymore. It lived and danced in his quick, steady eyes. Mm -hmm. Is that really the least among us should be first because he gave encouragement to others. But we go into a staff meeting. And we're sitting uh, along the wall. They knew him. They didn't know me. Um, the center director, the current, that at the time, the center director and the deputy are up there. And it was absolute chaos. Uh, my task was to quickly, you know, kind of reflecting back on the Marine Corps experience. Who's in what position? What are they doing? What's their, you know, as much as I can discern, what is their uh, area of responsibility, you know, and then what are they doing about it? But this meeting was absolute chaos. And it was, it often happens, a lot of people that have good ideas that often, unfortunately, don't involve them doing it. And I could not tell who was doing what to whom. And they're all in very casual clothes, as I would find out pretty quickly, most of them had either lost their house totally or had their house significantly degraded or at the very best or without power. Okay. But yet they're still struggling mightily. And as we walked out, uh, I'm kind of a couple a step and a half to the right uh, behind Bill Parsons as he is talking to the center director uh, or this retired admiral. And uh, basically he told him, he said, uh, listen, this is what I want you to do. Once you go home and I will call you when to come get your stuff out of my office. You understand? So he leaves wow. and I go, wow, what did you do? Just firing? He goes, yeah. He said, I might get fired, but it's the right decision for this time. And I'm going to take charge. And uh, that was a very bold and risky, maybe even a gamble as opposed to risk. But he takes it. And his, here's his guidance to me, maybe more to your point. Joe, you and I will meet at the staff meeting at seven in the morning. Um, then you go do what you need to do to return this place to some sense of normalcy. 
And then we'll meet if we, if we can at noon, we'll eat a little lunch and then we'll meet right before the 7 p.m. staff meeting. And then he asked me, what do you think I need to do to that staff? I said, you come in about 15 minutes later and I will get them organized. And so uh, the next morning, uh, in fact, did that as we slept uh, in an, an office on a air mattress for a while. And um, really, at the risk of sounding oversimplistic, what Bill Parsons brought, and I tried to extend some of that in my own areas, was a sense that there's someone that's in charge, willing to accept the responsibility, both good and bad, uh, for the outcomes. And that's willing to give direction, but also willing, as he was very good to do, to ask what I believe is that most important question a leader can ask a subordinate, is what do you think? Mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, be prepared for that answer, right? But, um, but also, he's not a guy which sometimes can be a part of the culture of NASA is, you know, examine problems uh, forever without getting to a solution. But Bill really had very good instincts and could make decisions, you know, so that was that other component. Mm -hmm. And so we're, what's some of the activities as uh, FEMA brings in a depot, uh, for instance, you know, finding and getting people rallied around uh, some of those requirements. Another part of what I think Bill and I did, by the way, Hurricane Katrina and those kind of disasters like combat are a great adventure if you haven't lost a house. Oh, yeah. Or you hadn't been shot. They're great adventures, right? right? Yeah. And, and so part of what I believe that I needed to do, certainly Bill did, we talked about it explicitly, is to sort of get people out of, for want of a better term, their funk. Mm. You know, that, oh, you know, this happened, you know, all the, the, the kind of the vestiges of our organizational life are suspended. And, um, you know, I reached back into my Marine Corps experience, just a simple act of coming back off a deployment, six-month deployment aboard ship, and division calls down and says, hey, we need 30 Marines to go to the rifle range next week, and you you rail against that. Oh, don't they know we just came off the planet? You know, no, no, that's over. You know, yeah. from the larger institutional perspective. And as I told people down there, after the administrator came down a couple of days, I said, you know, from the headquarters NASA perspective, this this disaster is kind of over. They're going to support us, but they're still they're going to want to get back to normalcy. And and, and this was kind of accidental, but I've used it as a kind of a phrase. As I go into organizations, I would use it with a client. Uh, I call it mowing the grass. So that yeah. first uh, full day I'm there, this uh, after that uh, firing of the, the old center director, uh, I found the, the headquarters building manager and asked him a couple questions. I said, uh, hey, uh, y'all have lawnmowers? He goes, yeah. I said, uh, do you have people to operate them? He goes, yeah, we do. I said, do you have gas for the lawnmowers? It was an issue, right? Mm -hmm. And he goes, yeah, we do. I said, why don't you, and we had like 4,500 people live in most of them in that headquarters building that had no association with NASA or the Stennis Space Center. They just were 
we don't want to use these terms, but they were refugees in the yeah. classic sense. And I said, why don't you go around and ask everybody to, for volunteers or ask for volunteers to go and clean up these little pieces of debris that, as it turned out, was part of the roof. Um, pile those up and mow the grass. And he looked at me kind of funny, like, huh? Don't you know we just had a hurricane? You know, and I said, yeah, exactly. You've got to return, start doing those things that return this to a sense of normalcy. And the best thing you could do is mow the grass, in my estimation, mow the grass and have a visual cue or visual proof that we're returning to normalcy. And he got this look in his eye, I'll never forget it. And he goes, yeah, I got it. <laughs> so later on that afternoon, <laughs> before the staff meeting, uh, Bill Parsons comes in and says, in very colorful language that I won't repeat on your podcast, <laughs> who, who the blank had these guys mowing the grass? Don't they, we know we had a hurricane? I said, Bill, I did. I said, we gotta start somewhere, and this is something that everybody can see. And to his good credit, because it wasn't his idea or whatever, he says, yeah, I get it. So, you know, my admonition to myself and other leaders, sometimes you got to mow the grass, you know, with an organization when you join them. And I was talking about a client that had a, a hill that had all these old broken down trailers that was an eyesore. And the first thing I asked them to do, I say first thing um, pretty quickly, is let's get the hill cleaned off so that everybody could see it, you know, that there's a new sheriff in town, if you will, that, you know, we can influence our environment, our, our, our own organic environment. Um, and I believe I hadn't spent any time researching it or finding the real proof, but I believe it is that you can start change with simple lives, which has led me to kind of use this term. There are no big things, only mm -hmm. small things that build into what we call the big things. Well, that, that is a, for me, that's a, I, I, I think that's a great illustrative example of what you as a leader, um, if you're listening to this or your organization uh, needs to do in the midst of complexity where you don't know what to do next. And that's, and that's do something, do something small we, I call them safe to fail experiments, but sure, you, you want to do something, something small to, to, to build a momentum into the system that you're trying to affect so that you can learn from that initial thing. So, uh, you know, in, especially in these chaotic situations, like you're describing a, a, a crisis situation where you're recovering from a, from a hurricane, just doing something puts the organization in motion. It, it gets them doing something where you can then learn from that. Um, you know, and, and I think that if, I know there's been a lot of studies done on, on hurricanes retreat and response. And it's some of the paralysis that existed there was exactly because uh, leaders didn't understand that, that that initial activity needed to happen in order yeah. for people to get that, that normalcy feeling back so that they would, they would get out of the, as you said, get out of the funk and, yeah. and, and rise up uh, to, to the change that needed to happen. Yeah. And so, so Bill, you know, that, that was just my lesser example. He was doing a similar sort of thing, Bill Parsons, as he went around. One, we also, by the way, were explicit about uh, let's go around and, and spend, expend the energy 
almost the personal capital to get people to tell you, tell you their story. You know, some of that was just the, the you know, PTSD, the post-traumatic uh, stress uh, disorder effects aren't the sole domain of combat. Right. And, um, and I've heard a tremendous number of stories, sad stories, uh, none, you know, of survival. Okay, so there's a, there's a, a happiness to that aspect. But, you know, part of that, I think, was our sincere, I believe it was very sincere desire to let them tell their story. Uh, but it was also more practical that they need to tell their story, not internalize it. But that through that, Bill uh, led an effort to do the small things that very quickly he matured an understanding of how each individual that composed this large organization, um, how this affected them. And, um, it, it, and so from that uh, Stennis exper uh, experience, which I spent uh, probably four months down there living on a cot in a, a building kind of out in the woods, um, you know, there was a lot of fun to it that was necessary they have an old house that was that predated the space center when eminent domain was, uh, you know, invoked to, to create the space center back in the early sixties. And they, it was kind of like an officer's club, a party house, if you will. And so that became the center of our social functions. And, you know, again, uh, that opportunity, uh, for release and to get to know uh, the folks. And then we, Actually, then as um, we started looking forward to the future, um, in my day-to-day -day presence was uh, modified to, to you know, kind of be on call. We we took the leadership team to uh, Vicksburg, Mississippi, and used that battlefield uh, as a, a conduit or a, a vehicle uh, to continue their journey as a team, mm -hmm. and. and um, and, the, and then from that, we kind of developed, uh, started the, the, the underpinnings of a, of a new strategy that would lead them in this new world because, you know, the, the effects of that uh, are still there today. Um, you know, I'm always mindful of it's a matter of perspective. You know, if I took any of your listeners that had no experience down there, you might be able to discern that something happened here, you know, because of a, a slab or something. But it then for those people that, you know, experienced it and still live there, it'll never be recovered. In fact, I overheard someone ask a, a, a wonderful gentleman named Roy Estes, who'd been a longtime center director there and was retired, came in. We brought all the employees back. Very emotional experience. Sometimes that's the first time they'd known of the whereabouts, the condition of their fellow uh, uh, teammates there. Mm. And, uh, somebody asked him, said, Mr. Roy, how long did it take y'all to recover from hurricane Camille 1969? Mm -hmm. And very sincerely, a great man thought about it. He said, you know, I just thought we were getting recovered from Camille when Katrina hit 2005. Mm. And so this appreciation for as a leader, Regardless if it's something as dramatic of, as Katrina or just their everyday life, that this empathy 
that we apply words to it, but it's this human touch. Yeah. As a leader, that's to be most effective is not important. It's essential. It's vital. It's an imperative. Mm. And, um, and I don't think you can teach that. I mean, something that you'd mentioned earlier about preparation, I've always kind of heard it this way. There's a science that supports the art of mm-hmm. leadership. And, um, and I would tell any of you, your listeners, anyone willing to listen as I've done in the past, or will do in the future that my friend Bill Parsons had that touch. Um, and I don't know what all the component parts are, but, uh, he's got it. And, uh, I hope to, to be like him as I continue to improve. So then he, uh, had this opportunity cause his family still lived down, uh, Kennedy space center and this on the space coast of Florida, they were mm-hmm. Canaveral. And, uh, he, he'd spent almost three years, uh, doing the return to flight activities, uh, post Columbia accident. And uh, he became the deputy director and um, with a view of ultimately becoming the director and asked me to come down to do some executive coaching. And um, then pretty quickly he said, Joe, I would like for you to come be my chief of staff. Hmm. And uh, so when he took over on one January of uh, 2007, I became the chief of staff uh, for your listeners uh, it's as the name implies, the chief of the staff, but there was also a, for one of a term of synchronization and coordination that in the military parlance, we usually put with a, an operations officer, mm-hmm. uh, aspect, um, not terribly well-defined, but I think Bill, um, and I've had the relationship developed over time, but in a professional sense, really in Katrina, um, and, and beyond that to, you go do the right thing. And so there was that trust aspect, uh, that, uh, was part of that. And, um, you know, the great thing about NASA is you can come in at a senior leader, uh, position, unlike the military without the previous experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the things that I was very conscious of, uh, that I think maybe sometimes Roy is a failure of um, uh, retired military folks um, is I needed to modify my approach, my language. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about us words. I'm talking about my professional lexicon right. uh, to them, not them to me. Mm-hmm. And I believe there's a subtle but vitally important difference between this Marine Colonel whose name happens to be Joe Dowdy and Joe Dowdy who happened to have been a Marine Colonel. And, uh, you know, I was very conscious about that. Well, that's, um, I think that's been a great um, example for our listeners to really understand the, the maturity of, of leadership in, in the, um, the crucible of experience. In fact, I know the Marine Corps calls, one of their key cornerstone um, events of becoming a Marine, the crucible. But I, I do think that we go through those experiences and they, they have such an impact on us. Uh, and for, for our listeners, you may not have experienced anything like myself or Joe, but, but you will, is what I'm going to say. You will experience some form of crucible ex- um, event, if you will, in your professional career, <coughs> excuse me, in your professional career that, um, that, 
um, what you have done in the past uh, will now have to be redefined uh, on especially how you, you navigate that. So Joe, you, earlier in the episode, you mentioned um, you have these quote rules of combat unquote. Um, and I was wondering if you might want to, you know, you know, list those out for us, expose on them and, and really maybe describe why they're a rule for you and what you, in the application you use that now in your, in your professional consulting practice. Um, with organizations? Sure. Well, I'd love to, you know, rules of combat is probably a misnomer in, in certainly rules, um, you know, which seems restrictive and all that. I'd like, kind of like to think of them as leadership parables. You know, the things that I learned from others, they're not original thoughts. Mm-hmm. And I've already mentioned three. Uh, the enemy always has a vote. You don't have to be in a military operation to, 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 to really give a broad definition to enemy. The situation always has a vote. External players always have a vote. Don't generate your own friction. Be a teacher, not a lecturer. Be a student, not a critic. Uh, one that uh, uh, I use from time to time, I think it's been attributed uh, to uh, uh, Viscount uh, Slim, uh, General Slim from the Burma days, is uh, a couple of variations, but my favorite is um, nothing is as good or as bad as initially reported. In other words, initial reports are often wrong. You know, uh, the sky's falling. And then you discover once you get in there, you keep your calm. And, and if you understand that, you know, based on your experience, it's generally not that bad. Or, hey, how do we do on that inspection? Sorry, it was the best ever except for these findings, you know, and, yeah. and, and so, uh, that's one, uh, certainly that, uh, you know, uh, has, uh, come to the fore from, from time to time. Um, you know, there's one I've kind of termed the rule of the triangle. Um, you know, if you imagine a triangle and at each point of that triangle, there's one of these three words, good, fast, or cheap. And the, the rule goes like this. You can have two of those. It's a law. It's not a rule. It's a law, like law of gravity. Uh, you can have two, but you can't have three. If you want something good and fast, it won't be cheap. If you want something cheap and good, it won't be, you know, fast. And those kind of things. That that uh, is always, uh, you know, <laughs> you know. But oftentimes we try to, to to violate that. In fact, NASA institutionalized that under a past. Uh, administrator when it was called uh, cheaper, faster, better. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, and again, you, you stand the, the high risk of frustrating people, uh, creating false expectations about a, a, a enterprise or a project. Um, you know, um, one that's a personal to me that came back in a discreet, time in combat was from a uh, retired uh, four-star general when I was a student at the infantry officer advanced course. It's an army school at Fort Benning, Georgia, back in the uh, 87. And uh, it was a general named Cavazos. Uh, wonderful gentleman. And uh, he was the keynote speaker on this warrior day of these retired combat veterans coming back and imparting um, their experiences to us young captains. 
and with great emotion in his talk uh, that's never left me. He, he said, uh, you know, you've got to love your soldiers and your Marines because one day you might have to take them out and have them killed. But you never do that cheaply. You never do that without due regard for other ways to accomplish the mission, that you never fail to love your soldiers and your Marines. You know, that's kind of biblical, the least shall be first. Mm-hmm. You know, is uh, a way I have internalized that, that uh, and it's become fundamental to my philosophy is that um, I should be as a leader, the servant and not the served. Right. And good things will come to you, by the way. Uh, and you see it in your really good leaders. And, you know, I've mentioned General Zinni. He was a servant. Mm-hmm. He was serving my needs because he came back and put me together and gave me a lesson that I've never forgot. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so one that, that actually came back more often than I would have ever thought, particularly in NASA, was a simple question. Always know what, is, what REF A is. And REF A is shorthand for military correspondence for reference A. And the background for that is uh, I was a fairly junior lieutenant colonel waiting to go to an infantry battalion in the storied 1st Marine Division at Camp Pendleton, California. And I was the uh, G3 operations officer for the division. And the G3 was a full colonel named uh, Jay Paxton. And and I had a, a major that worked with me that had been working on this concept uh, for uh, what's called an air contingency Marine air ground task force for our larger command, which is the Marine Expeditionary Force out there, three-star command, blah, 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 and had gotten this thing down for signature. And it had uh, a a schedule for the next five years of battalions falling in on this. It was kind of restrictive posture that you had to have musters so many times a day in case you had to fly off on a short notice to do some sort of contingency. And uh, we had uh, ammo allocated for it, all this stuff. And, and General Paxton, or later General Paxton, Assistant Commandant of the Marine Corps later, but uh, Colonel Paxton had recently arrived and I take it into the great man for the signature from the 1st Marine Division. And so he's looking over it and uh, like he would was wont to do, hey, this is really good work, blah, blah, blah. You know, he's going through all these things. I'm sitting there, you know, like, yeah, uh, Gary Lehman, the major had been working on us, did a great job, you know, where we're patting ourselves on the back. And then he asked this question, Joe, what's reference A for this? I said, sir, (laughs) he said, the thing that tells us this is a requirement that we must go do this. I said, sir, I I don't know. I'll have to find out. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go find out. And then, you know, before I sign, well, guess what? There was no reference A that some well-meaning staff officers thought this was a good idea. Mm. And so they put together this thing and I'm not talking about in two weeks, I'm talking about over months, 
meetings and, and all these things that then, you know, for the non-military listeners, there was no requirement. In other words, this was not on U.S. Pacific Command or U.S. Central Command on their list of options, response options to some potential contingency throughout the globe that, hey, we've got this um, Air Contingency Marine Air Ground Task Force on the step, ready to go. The, the Marines, in essence, setting on their gear. They are all inspected. All those activities that go on, that would not have been on anybody's radar. That simple question of what's ref A that I've also kind of taken in those rules of combat to, to say, what problem are we trying to solve? Mm-hmm. And so I try, you know, with some success and some maybe failures from time to time is to resist the urge to almost like stampede after a good idea to, uh, to really understand what the requirement is. And it doesn't take long. This shouldn't be a long process. And I'm not gonna recount, you know, a number of examples uh, beyond uh, Colonel Paxton's, but, you know, at at NASA, you know, people doing uh, literally studies on on the bursting, uh, I'm not getting it right, but there was these, uh, COPVs, a chemical overwrap uh, protective uh, mm-hmm. vessels, you know, that don't have a bursting. And there were people that did a study on what's the bursting, you know, uh, tolerance for these things and blah, blah, blah. And they came briefed the center director and uh, my friend Bill Parsons basically said, y'all have come up with a theoretical solution to a theoretical problem, you know, that people had expended effort when that could have been stopped. You know, by yeah. basically saying, what's the requirement? What right. problem are we trying to solve? And so that's, that's just kind of a, you know, some total of, uh, you know, some things be the servant, not the servant. I mentioned earlier, um, you, you know, um, um, you know, for me, everything that this organization does good belongs to all of us. Um, what we fail at belongs to me, ultimately, you know, as that leader of that organization, and I've already kind of mentioned, you know, uh, you know, obviously uh, a couple of others about uh, the, the almost uh, moral responsibility of being a teacher, you know, and, and so these, these are those things, really the purpose is to remind me from time to time of, uh, you know, what are my responsibilities? What are those things that compose a good, moral, effective, leader. And, uh, that, that's where the rules of combat, maybe I need to think about a new name, but. Oh, I like the name. Cause you know, obviously I've had the experience, but, um, you know, for our listeners, just so you know, it's, I will, uh, I'll make sure that these are kind of summarized in, in, in a list format in the show notes. But, um, I think what's key out of this, Joe, and, and I've, I've really, I really, um, appreciate that you were willing to share this with, with me and the listeners is, is this really is a leadership philosophy for you in how you approach any leadership situation, but in particular, those situations upon which um, you're moving into chaos or crisis or complexity, you, you have to have something to stand on um, from, a, from a leadership perspective. Because if you don't, 
honestly, your, your inexperience as a leader will cause more harm than good. Um, and so uh, I think, you know, obviously I, I, I look back on my own service um, and experiences and, and believe they have shaped me uh, into the leader I am today. And, you know, many times I don't take the time to reflect on that to really, to really be able to articulate as well as you have what those, those kind of maxims that I would attribute uh, my leadership philosophy around. Uh, I, I don't know if I could articulate them as well as you have. So I, I wanted to thank you uh, for sharing that with not just me, but, but our listeners as well. Because if you're listening out there, this is a pretty good list. Uh, and I've had a good bit of experience in, in obviously not as much as, as, as Joe, but I've had a good bit of experience in leading organizations. And, and from my own personal experiences, this is a great, a great baseline for you out there if you're listening and, and you need something to, to kind of begin to internalize and own as yourself. And I think the other key thing is, is as Joe's, you've done so well at even describing the stories is you got something from somebody else and you applied it to yourself and you made it your own. Uh, and I think that's what's so unique about the way you've done this and, and, and talking about leading leadership in particular, leading, leading in crisis and, and chaos. Yeah, so well, I want to, I want to thank you for that and appreciate that. Well, you know, I know you're familiar with the kind of almost the theme of Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun. That's right. You know? Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, to the, to your leaders out there, um, that are clearly trying to get better through this vehicle and, and certainly others is, uh, there's nothing new under the sun Borrow heavily from other people's experience applied to your own. And, uh, and just be explicit about it. Don't be accidental. Yeah. So, Joe, um, I, I want to, uh, first of all, thank you for, for coming on today. But before, I, before we wrap up, I always like to ask this question of our, of our guest. And that's if you're talking to somebody uh, of a younger generation who's, who's entering into, uh, let's say they've, they've been in the career, their career for you know, five, maybe seven, eight years, and they're entering into a new, a new area of responsibility where now they have to, to lead the, an organization or a part of the organization. Uh, what's some of the, the, the key advice that you would give them in not just to prepare for it, but then to, to walk in that first day and be confident about who they are and what they need to do? Yeah. You know, I almost reflect back on the, the uh, really honor of welcoming a new lieutenant to the entry battalion or, you know, this is their first time out with, the troops, as the army calls it, we call it in the fleet, uh, or as a regimental commander, as I welcome them aboard. And a couple of things that I would say to them is uh, kind of wrap a lot of it around uh, this idea of the most important question you can ask is what do you think? You know, I, I found, include myself, that you come in, uh, you know, quietly often, particularly a place like the Marine Corps or the Army, where physical presence and all those kind of things are important, um, you know, establishing uh, your position as, as an officer, um, not becoming their buddy, but their leader, that sort of thing. But I would say, ask that question, what do you think? You know, be prepared for the answer. To um, 
in, in other words, don't believe if you do that right, that that's going to erode your position. It's actually going to strengthen your position. And I used to give this example, just to be brief, is uh, there'd be like if you get your three squad leaders, which would be a corporal, maybe a sergeant, um, say, hey, we're going to train next week. What do y'all think we ought to do? And you go, yes, Sergeant Smith. He goes, sir, I think we ought to train in boxer shorts. And you answer that like, mm, that's pretty stupid. Uh, somebody give me another idea. But rather take that extra mile, expend that energy, and you go, so what's your thinking, Sergeant Smith? He might actually have a good rationale. Mm-hmm. You know, you go, well, you know, what if we're in a chemical environment and uh, we get contaminated on the way to this very critical objective to take that hill and we got to kind of do a hasty decon by stripping our uniforms to get that chemical agent away from us and we continue to carry on the hill. That's not a bad answer. Now, am I going to go out and train in boxer shorts? No. <laughs> but I'm not going to cut his legs out from underneath him because he's thinking, you know, you know, let's just kind of keep some of that in mind. Let's what's the next thing, you know, where you can create, you know, through your words and your deeds, this idea that everybody has a vested interest in the success or failure of that organization. They'll give their life for it. That's kind of a requirement in the army and the Marine Corps, mm-hmm. you know, and we don't want to go to that, that those levels, but that level of commitment, and then, you know, the other thing is remember not as, not as pronounced perhaps in private sector and other organizations, but I've made an allusion to these dog years, you know, that we lived in in the military is that I, as that leader, that officer was just visiting. Those Marines lived there. And I've got to remember that when I come in there, you know, as particularly a young leader, if I'm not going to come in there by accident, tell them in a sense that everything they've done before counts for nothing, counts for nothing. And uh, I had the the guy that replaced me, you know, this kind of of typical guy replaced me, took that and they, the Marines themselves had made a sign. It was first battalion, first Marines. And there's old saying, right of the line, first to foot. And I'd kind of use that in one of the first talks I had to a place of honor, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And they made this sign and put it over the entrance to the command post. They made it. Mm-hmm. And the first thing he did is take that down and reword it. Reword it. Now you say, well, what's the big deal? Mm-hmm. Well, it was a big deal. There's no big things. There's only small things. That in essence, without him intending to do this, he said to them, I'm here for two years. This is my time. Y'all kind of sort of count, but only to, you know, in essence, let me put my stamp on it, make myself look good. That's their perception. I'm not saying that was what his thought was, but perception's reality. And, and, and so I would say to young people, don't be afraid of spending that time, not an inordinate amount of time. It's an art form, but, learning where they've been, where they think they're going, and where you can serve their needs best through your leadership, through your, uh, you know, anything from creating priorities, uh, but to always kind of weave in there, hey, what do y'all think? What do you think? 
And the idea in part being to develop that sense that, hey, this is mine. Uh, you know, I do have a vested interest in this as a subordinate of this gentleman or this lady. And uh, I'm in it with them together. And then finally, remember as a leader, your words matter. Yeah. And uh, always like General Zinni, be conscious of that. Well, for um, for our listeners, Joe, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to just uh, sit, you know, have a chat with us and just talk about your experiences uh, in leadership and in complex and chaotic environments. Uh, I I have really learned a lot just from uh, reflecting on on your experiences and your words today, uh, and I would I just want to say thank you. Um, if people want to connect with you, um, maybe find out a little bit more about you, how would you suggest they do that? Well, if you're going to, you know, I'm going to send you those rules of combat, uh, since we, you know, we get off. If you want to, um, you've got my email address, telephone number, uh, I'm more than happy, uh, to support your very good and noble, uh, endeavors here in this podcast and the other things that uh, you and your team do. So please uh, feel free to do it. I think that'll be the best either email or phone call. Okay. Um, well, again, um, for our listeners, this, uh, our, our goal here in having uh, folks like, like Joe on our show is really to help uh, equip you to be able to, um, to navigate complexity. Uh, and, you know, as we say, we want to inspire you to brilliance. And I, I've been inspired just by, by our conversation today, Joe. And I just want to, again, one, thank you for coming on. But more importantly, thank you for all that you have personally done for, uh, for our country, uh, both in your service in the Marine Corps and your service in, in other ways, especially in NASA, and as you described it today. But, but I think the most important thing I want to thank you for is your willingness to invest your time, your, your um your mentorship of people like me and others that you affect on a day-to-day basis, because I think it matters. It matters because you're making, uh, you're making our country, our society and our world a better place by what you do on a day-to-day basis. So I just want to say thanks as we, as we kind of wrap up here. Well, thank you, Roy. And uh, I think this is also a a noble enterprise. You know, I've, uh, we'll we'll close with this. Uh, I've been very fortunate just like you, you know, I can say the same thing about you. Um, thank you for your service to our nation. And, and uh, um, but I've had uh, um, uh, opportunity at the different places where people will say something like, hey, Joe, thanks for our service to our nation. I'm thinking of some private sector clients. And um, thank you, Colonel, something like that. And I always answer this way. Thank you for what you do for our nation. That if this particular enterprise, this company fails, our nation as we know it will cease to exist. That the the ownership of uh, service above oneself is not the sole domain of the military, although they own a lot of it, I got it. But it's the NASA's, it's the Google's, it's you name it. And so any of your listeners out there, I wanna say to them, Thank you for what you're doing for our nation. That if you're generating wealth and creating opportunity, bringing happiness to people in their professional life, what, how much better than that is it? Can it be? So 
I want to say that to uh, your listeners. Thank you for what you're doing for our nation by becoming better and more effective leaders and lead your organizations and whatever enterprise they're engaged in. Thank you, Roy, for the wonderful work you've done, and thank you for your kind words. Uh, Joe, thank you as well. And for our listeners, if you want to connect with us, uh, you can uh, reach out to us at artofcomplexity.com. You can email me at uh, show at artofcomplexity.com or in our professional practice at Genosco Consulting. I can be reached at Roy at Genosco, T-I-N-O-S-K-O dot C-O. Now, in our next episode, I really look forward to to what we're going to be talking about. So be sure to hit the subscribe button and uh, look for our next episode. The show notes for this episode are going to be posted on our medium publication at medium.com slash art of complexity you can find that uh, as well from our website and joe again thanks for being honest uh, with us and um, i look forward to the next time we get to actually sit down and talk again same here have a good day thank you